and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Uh, Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening. We're so incredibly grateful. So please do let us know what you think, what you'd like more of, and any debut authors you'd like to hear from. Also, it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve. Today, we're talking to Justin Myers, author of The Last Romeo, about crossing the line between fact and fiction, how your surroundings affect what you write, and ignoring all the writing advice you've ever read. I felt disoriented and a bit peaky. How was it possible I was here, right now, like this? That weird feeling when you arrive somewhere on holiday after a long flight and you're unpacking and suddenly realise only this morning you were standing in your dingy kitchen in West London worrying about the taxi being late and now here you are, thousands of miles away in a hotel room realising your phone charger is back in that dingy kitchen. Unsettled, displaced, exposed, yet superhuman because however you got there you made it happen yourself. In an unfamiliar lounge of an unfamiliar flat, surrounded by boxes and bags containing the life of the stranger I was ten minutes ago, listening to the sound of the supposed love of my life plodding down six flights of stairs that would take him outside and away from me forever, my life began. Breaking up with Adam would have been easier if it had been over something headline-grabbing and dramatic. But he'd never played away from home, wasn't embezzling my savings account, and never laid a finger on me. Adam's crimes were stealthy, His talent was wrong-footing me, or trying to fix me up to be less of an inconvenience. His love for me felt like a series of favours, with the repayment on each one becoming harder and harder to meet every time. I had it all worked out the day I finally made up my mind. Many a time, after an argument about money or his insistence I order something different from him in a restaurant, I'd fantasised about what I'd say if I ever decided to leave – Great long speeches, full of adjectives I never got to use in everyday life to explain why I couldn't do it anymore. Tears, perhaps, or crockery shattering against a wall. I considered a trip to Ikea to make sure we had plenty to spare. He would beg my forgiveness, I decided, cling to my ankles as I strode majestically out of the flat. He would implore me to reconsider, tell me he'd change, and I'd half-smile, put my index finger to his lips bid him hush and say evenly, go fuck yourself, Adam. The reality was different. Hi, Justin, and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast. Hello. We are... (laughs) Hello, Amy's also here. Um, We are absolutely delighted to have you here. Thank Um, you. Could we start with you telling us a little bit about your debut novel, The Last Romeo? Okay. Quite a lot happens in it, so I'll I'll be as brief as possible. Um, it, It is... I suppose in a nutshell, it's kind of like a romantic comedy with a bit of an edge. So there, it's about a, a gay guy, a guy, who breaks up with his uh, controlling mean boyfriend of six years. And once liberated, he goes on lots of dates and decides, for various reasons, uh, to write about them in a blog under the pseudonym of Romeo. Uh, the blog is called One More Romeo. And um, he inadvertently becomes uh, famous when he goes on a date with a closeted Olympic athlete and writes about it. And it goes kind of viral and people want to find out who this athlete is. 
And so it's kind of about that, but also about uh, very modern problems like uh, how we deal with um, online life versus our real life, uh, the way we talk about celebrities coming out and how we deal with that. And um, yeah, I think that's it. That's enough. Great. Yeah, that's yeah. a great description. Yeah, Thank that's what happens. Um, so you're best known for your blog, The Guy Liner, which, yes. um, which chronicled your own quest to find Mr. Right. Yes, kind in, of. Amongst other things as well. Yes. I, I love your, your Guardian little summaries. They're amazing. Um, so in ways, your, your book emulates kind of a per- similar personal journey. Mm. Um, so how did you find the process of kind of fictionalising aspects of that? Or how did you kind of keep it separate? Or um, It's funny because lots of people who've already seen the manuscript think that it is very closely based on my own experiences. But in fact, the truth of it really was quite boring in that I just went on dates and wrote about them and then nothing else really happened until I I met someone. Um, So um, the main character is not really like me, but it was quite interesting um, writing about it because what I really wanted to do was maybe tell the side of it that I'd never really told in my blogs or to readers in that... Um, talking about the emotional issues around having this kind of secret persona. I mean, I make it sound a lot more glamorous than it actually was. It was still just me sitting in my pants typing in my flat. That sounds glamorous. Literally living the dream. Yeah, this was not like some swish penthouse. I mean, people didn't really care who I really was, I don't think. Um, So it was strange, but it was also quite... Not cathartic, because that suggests that there was like some kind of deep-seated emotional problems from it, but it was nice to bring that era to a close. I really felt like it was the natural end for all that anonymous persona era, because I, I revealed who I was when I, the book was announced uh, last January. I'd kept anonymous until then, so it, it felt like a nice way to close it all off. And how has it been moving from writing under a pseudonym and the protection that that gives you to writing something under your real name and putting it out there? I would imagine it's either quite terrifying Mm. or quite liberating or maybe somewhere in between. Yeah. That's all of the options. Yeah. Yeah. Liberating, yes, in that I didn't have to worry about being exposed anymore and that I'd kept, I'd managed somehow to keep control of that for the six and a half years I was anonymous. But also terrifying because you do lose that protection, but also, and this this, this comes up in the book when uh, the main character James is worrying about being exposed or revealing himself, that perhaps the real me is nowhere near as interesting as the guy liner seems to be. So there was always that worry that I would reveal who I was and people would go, mm, so what? You know, like they did a bit when Belle de Jour was uh, unmasked. She unmasked herself as well, though. And by then, I think she left it a bit too long. Mm. And by then no one really cared and a few people were disappointed that she wasn't this like seven feet tall amazonian busty goddess even though she had in no way represented herself as that in the books so i was really lucky in that the reaction was quite positive a couple of people said i was hot (laughs) which was important you totally are yeah thanks (laughs) um and uh yeah so it's 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 liberating that i just don't have that really annoying part of it anymore where i have to pretend or i mean i was quite rubbish at being anonymous anyway i gave away pretty much all my details what i looked like (laughs) even my height um you know uh where i lived and that kind of thing and what i did for a living so all that was missing really was because i used to pose with i had one eye available that was my uh, icon was just my 
left eye. And so basically all I was doing was revealing the other eye. <laughs> That's all I see it as. And everyone put the pieces together. Did you ever go on a date and were busted by an individual who then had to swear to secrecy and or kill? Um, no, I would have liked to have killed some of them anyway, just for the thrill. But um, no, uh, there was one guy who I definitely suspected that he knew. But I thought to call him out on it would be quite dangerous because then he could go and have it confirmed that he'd been on a date with the guy liner. So there was definitely one date where I, th- I thought he knew. He was kind of in conversation saying things that I remembered writing in the blog. And so I uh, I brought... Uh, the date to an early finish after I'd snogged him, obviously. <laughs> it was a Friday night. I'd made I'd made the effort to come out, and then 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 I had to let him go. Sorry about that. I can't remember what your name was, but sorry. Well, um, oh, don't want to say. Well, well yeah. um, obviously you've just made us laugh out loud, and yeah. the book has been making us laugh out loud as well. Good. It's um, it's um, hilarious, but it's also a really emotional journey, like you've said. Yes, um, which is which is. Great. So what do you think that's the secret to writing good comedy? You know, like kind of combining those, the kind of like maybe the slapstick with the emotional, like the sort of like the realities of real life, like finding the humour in those things. What do you what, what do you think? <laughs> um, I, I don't know in that I don't see myself as writing comedy. I see it as that I write things and sometimes they are funny. Um, and I think what was really important to me when I was writing the novel was that it just wasn't... I Actually, when I was writing the novel, I was worried that it wasn't funny enough um, because I know that people expect a certain level of humour from my writing. That's the trouble with having so much of your writing out there mm. is that they have all these massive expectations. And so when I would meet people and they would say, oh, we can't wait for your book, I'd be like, oh, but maybe it's not what you're expecting. But it, it seems to be OK. But I would say I wanted it to be have a bit more depth to it and not just be gag after gag yeah. and um and also the story is i suppose it does lend itself quite well to showing a more emotional side james is quite an acerbic witty character but he is also lonely he's damaged from a breakup and he is in a in a job that most people would actually kill for to be honest but he he feels he is better than that so there's quite a lot of um, light and shade in his story so I suppose I wanted to convey that that you know um, it's not all um, you know there there is a downside to what can seem like a very interesting glamorous anonymous life mm. Mm. yeah well you've done a good job mm. thanks <laughs> and we read in an interview that you moved around a little bit whilst you were writing that you kind of were in some different locations whilst you were writing you're looking at me like I didn't move anywhere I stayed put <laughs> no I'm trying to work out what the interview was um it was one with the Irish Times oh right and you yeah. mentioned that you'd been in Paris that you'd been in I think Scotland did you oh, say oh yeah and yeah, then nice. in, in, yeah. in a cafe in Bayswater which is obviously <laughs> this sounds really glamorous the glam but it's, location. it's so not well, do, how, yeah. how did you find that you know your surroundings and where you wrote? You know, you mentioned that you've been mm. sitting around in your pants writing the guy yes. which is just what I want to be doing every day. Yeah. But, so how did you find that your surroundings impacted on what you wrote? Um, <clears throat> so the reason why I did move around a lot is because I work from home anyway. I, I write, you know, the other stuff that I do from home. And um, I live in a very, you know, my flat's nice, but I don't, you know, I don't want to see it all the time. So I would just go out for my own sanity to get some fresh air, hop on a Boris bike and just go somewhere. So that's where the cafe in Bayswater came along. There was a cafe on Portobello Road because I live in West London uh, that I would go to a lot as well. And 
it was strange, but I found myself writing um, more when I was out of the house. I actually didn't write a lot of the first book at home. Most of it was written out in cafes because um, I felt I was on more of a limited time. It was more of a, right, okay, so I'm going to go to a cafe and write the book for two hours. And so, so I kind of did. And it made me feel more human and more connected to people. So when all the characters' voices were like running around my head, it helped to be sitting in a cafe where a waitress was screaming that someone's latte was ready, believe it or not, <laughs> than it did in my own home, forgetting that I'd ever had human contact in my life. Mm. So... Um, yeah, as for um, Paris, my best friend lives there, so I got this really um, so I got this really romantic notion in my head that I wanted to finish the first draft in Paris. Yeah, fair enough. So I would have something to say in podcasts, right? <laughs> so um, I did. I went to see my best friend who lives in Paris. She she married a French guy, and um, I, I did finish the first draft in Paris, uh, which was nice. And then I finished the final draft in Scotland, visiting my dad and his wife, um, just because I needed to get away and finish it and do the final edits, and. Um, it really did help the writing process, removing myself from where I do my normal work. And I'm trying to do it with uh, with, with the second one as well. Uh, but um, it, yeah, it really did um, make me feel a bit freer. I do think I look back at the final draft and I think a lot of what stayed in the final draft was written while I was, you know, in some cafe or out of home. Definitely. Would you advise people writing a book or want to who want to write a book to, to do that, to kind of get out of your usual, you know, frame of reference away from where you work? And If you have that available to you, I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. if you have a day job in an office or something, then being at home is probably fine. But yeah, if you have it available to you, definitely go and explore. I mean, maybe the chain, as much as, you know, everyone is very anti the chain uh, cafes, they're less likely to hassle you to buy another drink mm. if you're a bit short on cash. So, you know, you can really make that Americano spin out for three hours, mm. um, which I, was really helpful. <laughs> I've done that so many times. I mean, seriously. Yeah. And I always go, oh, takeaway cup, thanks. So they don't remove the cup from you. And then after two hours, oh, I better pretend to have a sip from <laughs> this <laughs> freezing cold American. <laughs> Carno that's in front of me. Oh yes, yes, no, no. I'm still drinking that. <laughs> a friend of mine used to take her own tea bags to cafes. Wow, what which, an amazing yeah, idea! And she was always like, "Why don't you just take your own tea bags?" And I'd be like, "Because that is because <laughs> that's I can't live no, in some sort yeah. of way." <laughs> I know. I was like, I just don't think I can do that. But when I used to go to the independent cafes, I'd fi- I'd feel really bad, so I'd be ordering breakfasts mm. and salads. I'd spend a fortune. I've done that once. I spent seven pounds on chia pudding that I didn't even want. <laughs> I can't even imagine what that would taste like. It was it was okay. Yeah, it tasted nice, but I ate it in three spoonfuls and then just had. I was in quite a fancy place where the way just loitered and gave, yeah. gave me the side eye, gave me this stink eye, and I was like, Ugh. and then I couldn't write anything because I was so anxious mm. about having to get up and leave, and and then like, <clears throat> oh, I need to go to the loo, and then do you get someone to watch your stuff, and what do they steal your stuff, and it's <laughs> just writers' <laughs> I am feeling anxious just talking about it. I mean, what do you expect them to do when you ask them to look after your stuff? I, I because I I used to worry about this, so you know, if I say, please look after my computer, am I expecting them to? you know, physically challenge someone who tries to pick this computer up because they're probably not going to do that. They might say, they might have a look and realise it's not me picking up the computer, but they're just going to sit there. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I feel like I'd take the responsibility seriously. If yeah. someone asked me, to, like, you know, I would I would watch it. 
I wouldn't watch it. Like anyway, this is by the by. <laughs> I wouldn't watch but these are one of the many things you. I used to worry about when I was in these yeah, cafes. Yeah, yeah. No, I know, and I, I always in the British Library, everyone's always like, "Can you look after my computer? Can you look after my computer?" And writer's yeah. code. It's, it's writer's code. And you see, this is another reason why I used to go to places like noisy cafes to write. Is that I'm a very, very loud typer. Oh, you're one of them. Like a clacker. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> right. Um, my part. Yeah, it's just like. <laughs> Like, like I hate the keyboard. <laughs> like, like it's my nemesis. I'm a really loud typist, so you know, waiters do notice me. They they look up. So if I'm in a loud cafe where there's lots of distractions, I get left alone for a bit longer until I start to annoy people sitting yeah. around me, <laughs> just singing and typing. Like, excuse me, I'm an artist. <laughs> this is how I choose to express myself. Um, it's it's, it's interesting hearing about um how effective you find getting out of the house. Like, I, I'm a freelance writer as well, and mm. I if if I stay in the house to try and be creative where I'm normally writing about property you know I find that I just get I go on the, I like, I go on the internet I, like, I just there's, there's, it's, it's about finding that specific kind of routine that works yeah. for you and your writing and do you have any <clears throat> other kind of processes that you like to get you in the zone or to get kind of into the characters voices or anything like that Ooh, oh I really wish I had something really <laughs> fancy to tell you like I don't know I sit draped in scarves or something <laughs> to try and get in the in the mood let's go with that um <laughs> just utter si- bizarrely when i'm working at home i need complete silence now this is really weird because obviously i can go and sit in the middle of a costa and have you know um nursery groups all marauding all over the place around me and it doesn't bother me at all but at home i need complete silence um and knowing i'm not going to be disturbed so if there's i know there's a package coming or I'm expecting a phone call. I just can't. Mm. I can't write because I know I'm going to have to break off. So, yeah, that, apart from, yeah, so pretending the rest of the world doesn't exist is my only writer process. <laughs> That's a good one. That's, That's it. That's a good one. It post-apocalyptic. <laughs> I can only write in post-apocalyptic conditions. Covered in scarves. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, obviously, you've started out as a blogger. Um, mm. And now you've made the leap into being an author. Mm. How have you found making that transition do you think that the skills of being and you were a journalist as well yeah do you think the skills of being a journalist and blogging have helped you write the book um no (laughs) because because a blog is a very different proposition and a blog post is I mean I do go on a bit so 1,500 words to 2,000 words in my blog post usually um but it's it's a very different animal and I think when I first started writing the book I did think, oh, it's just going to be like, how many, I don't know, 30, 30 blog posts, it'll be fine. And then I started writing it and realised, oh, no, it's not like that, by the way, how how am I going to write this book? Um, It helped me insofar as I know my own voice, I suppose. And I, I don't know, I find it really difficult to talk about my own writing because I find it feels like I'm being really pretentious to, you know, go into the mechanics of it all. And it sounds like, you know, it, it's like this writer thing, isn't it, where you only feel comfortable to saying to everyone how terrible you are and how, you know, and how stressful it is and how tired you are. Boring. You never say how good something is or, you know, I, or you can't really enjoy it. So I've been trying not, not to be like that. So where was I going with that? Yeah. So, um, has blogging, has blogging helped? helped? <laughs> the answer of which seems to be no. No, but I, but I found my own, so, sorry, that's where I was going with it. So my voice, so I know my own voice and I know what is a Justin voice yeah. and what is a guy liner voice. So it was, 
in fact, it made it maybe it made it a bit more difficult, especially knowing that this was going to be published under my own name, because historically, the journalism and the writing I've done under my own name has been very different from guy linery stuff. But this novel obviously is very loosely based on the guy liner part of my life. So finding that balance, if anything, it made it more difficult. Because you know, you can be quite arch and acerbic for 1500 words in a blog post and it's it feels okay, but a book's worth of it would be very, very tiring to read. I can't stand books like that. And I struggle with even reading other people's writing that's a bit like that. I'm lucky in that people like reading my writing that's like that. <laughs> so it was it was quite different. And if anything, it made it more of a challenge, but a good challenge. I enjoyed it. It was nice to um, kind of write something that was not, just the guy liner and not just me but kind of like a weird hybrid yeah. between the two that's really fun well, so when you um when you were pitching the book well actually tell us a bit about how you got your deal because oh. I, I was i was, was going to ask specific questions about how you pitched it whether <clears> you were pitching it under the pseudonym or whether you're publishing and um, pitching it as yourself but yeah let, tell us a little bit about how you got your deal <laughs> tell us the, your fairy tale this is the kind of story i hate saying to other writers because it makes them hate me immediately the amount of authors that we've had on the podcast and at the riffraff that start answer that start answering that question that way is okay is high so I it's, it's so it's it i think it makes people feel better to know that some people are like have know the right people are lucky or there's you know there's there's I think it's 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 realistic, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't know what. Okay, so I was approached. Okay, nice. By the publisher, um, my amazing editor at Little Brown, Dominic Wakeford, um, was a fan of the Guyliner, and not just the Guardian Blind Date reviews that I've done since 2014. I do really like them. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, they they have probably uh, raised my profile much more than any of the other stuff had done has did um uh, he was a fan of like the old old dating stuff from way back when as well um and he just emailed me and said have you ever thought of writing a book and i was like well, have i thought about it i mean yeah of course <laughs> um and i was actually i'd been approached by an agent a couple of years earlier to write a non-fiction book about dating and i wasn't really into it and i'd wanted to write a novel and i did a proposal anyway and it didn't really go anywhere and i was really annoyed because that wasn't how i wanted my first um entrance into the world of publishing to be so i was kind of licking my wounds from that um and he said he was looking for the next gay novel something a bit different from the usual uh oh that sounds like i'm being a bit unfair in other gay novels but you know there's the misery lit and then there's the you know the sexy stuff and then there's the literary fiction so he was kind of looking for something that was a bit of all of those really and so um i sat and worried about that for two months Um, literally two months I sat and thought oh my god I have this opportunity coming at me at a million miles an hour and I have no idea what to do with it and then I got a bout of insomnia oh because of course he said if you can if it's something based on your blogs or whatever then fine Uh, but if something else then great so I sat and worried about it for two months and then I had a night of insomnia and thought of the plot an early version of the plot for the last Romeo and I wrote two sides of A4 and sent it to him and he loved it and he said can you do the first chapter and a couple of scenes from later in the book and I worried about that some more for another (laughs) I mean procrastination I mean I'm 42 this is taking a long time you know (laughs) Um, 
I worried about that for another couple of months and then I just did it and I sent it in and I got a book deal. Amazing. Holy moly. Yeah, all the worrying was worth it. Yeah. <laughs> it was insane and um, I couldn't believe it was happening and I was like, great, and now I have to write it. Yeah. And then yeah. I did. So it was fine. <laughs> and you did, exactly. I did write it. How long did it take you? Um, so that was all happening. I got the book deal end of November. It wasn't announced till January 2017, but I got it November 2016 and I started that Christmas and I finished my very, very first rough draft in the now defunct Starbucks in the Whiteley Centre in Bayswater in March. Bayswater. Uh, are you from Bayswater? No. I'm oh. just, just, you know, you've already represented it once, so I thought I'd just give it yeah. a shout out. <laughs> my, dentist, my dentist is there. My dentist is in Bayswater. Wonderful. I mean, Bayswater why I was in Bayswater is a whole other boring story. But um, <laughs> uh, so, um, and then I refined it myself quite a few times and then submitted it in May. And there were a couple of back and forths and I handed it in um, the first week in September. And that version, that last edit is pretty much the one that's that's there. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yes. Um, so you've mentioned that it's it's a not a gay novel. It's about the protagonist is gay. Yes. But and Attitude, and I'm quoting here, mm. um, reviewed it as Sex in the City meets Bridget Jones's Diary in this sharp and pacey queer rom-com gone wrong for the digital age. Okay, I'm happy with that. But, it I mean, it covers universal truths about dating that anyone would relate yeah. to, you know, whether you're gay or not. Yeah. So... Do you ever think about writing as a gay man or do you write as a writer and you happen to draw upon experiences mm. that come from your you know, own life? Um, I suppose being a gay man, I have a better insight into what that's like than most non-gay men. So it's always there. And I mean, you're right in saying that it's not a gay novel, but I'm not frightened of it being called a gay novel at all because the themes that some of the themes it deals with are quite unique to the LGBT experience coming out etc um, so I suppose when I was writing it I was quite conscious in that you know the LGBT audience is very um, we are very conscious of how we are represented in the media and in literature and we I suppose because we feel very underrepresented, we are very protective of how our stories are told. So if we feel misrepresented, how many times can I say represented or the different like permutations of it? If we feel we're misrepresented in a piece of literature or art, we can get quite vocal about it. And so when I was writing, I suppose I was very conscious of making sure that I wasn't speaking for everybody because I can't speak for everybody because there's whole swathes of the LGBT experience that I can have you know I can imagine it and I have empathy and I have friends who've gone through it but I can't there's just some things I'm not super confident talking about so I was very conscious of making the character aware of his own limitations I suppose because I was aware of, of my limitations when writing it so yeah the audience was very the LGBT audience was very much at the forefront of my mind but also a wider audience because I suppose a lot of my read a lot of the guy liners readers are straight I mean they are uh, you know on, on the evidence and so for a lot of them this will be an introduction of sorts to some of the issues that gay people face so yeah I suppose it was kind of 
ever present in some of the things I was writing it I was very conscious of the way I was writing women as well because I always feel in gay stories that sometimes women are a bit served quite badly so I wanted the women to feel like real women and not these you know amazing women who are always running in high heels Mm. and stuff (laughs) women my mum can run in high heels it's it's fine but you know it does happen but I suppose yeah it was it was on my mind a lot actually the the gayness of it but also making it um accessible for people who have just no idea of the gay world and I hope it pulls it off that was always what I wanted to do with the blog as well um which is why it was kind of written in the tone it was in. It was very much my story and not about gay men in particular. Mm. And I think I think it worked. Yeah. I don't know. We'll oh, see. Yeah, no, it, it, it does. <clears throat> okay. But it sounds like you you know, you do carry a lot of you feel a lot of responsibility to make sure that, you know, as you say, they are mis it is a mis underrepresented, misrepresent mis represented underrepresented all of it <laughs> it's all of those things um of course it is yeah and so you know you, you gay did... people don't get book deals every day yeah. especially to write commercial fiction yeah you know i i had a look at what was out there when i got the book deal because it was really frightening to 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 have this opportunity given to me and um I, so I had a look at what else was out there, and it really does fall into. I mean, there's other, there are, there are other, other books out there, but you know, there's quite the literary fiction side of it, and then there's the kind of more. Um, I was going to say horny. <laughs> we can go with the horny. Horny yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> because obviously, um, you know, you don't find novels with gay sex in every day unless you go down the kind of slightly more erotic route. So I wanted to find a balance. I'm not pretending in any way, shape or form that it's literary fiction because I don't think I'll ever be able to write something like that. But I suppose it's 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 a mixture. So it's it's a book about gay people that I hope feels relatable to anybody. Yeah. I think I think that you've absolutely nailed that. But just like everyone else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we usually have nicer shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Looking yeah. down at my own feet, like <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Um, for anyone that's looking to read, obviously they should read The Last Romeo, but yes. if, if, if there's, is there anything that you would recommend people do read? What to read? Uh, Sarah Waters, you can't really go wrong with Sarah Waters. She's such a brilliant uh, writer and she writes, especially, um, obviously she's quite literary. She's, li- she's literary fiction, I suppose, but she writes. she's such a beautiful writer and she writes... Um, lesbians really well and you hardly ever read anything Mm. in mainstream novels so while I wouldn't say she's particularly an influence because my writing is nothing like hers but I admire her hugely and um, I think if you want to write if you want to read um, good books about the gay experience from uh, all you know different uh, eras then she's a very good place to start she's excellent she's great Yeah. yeah she is yeah and they made it into it. They adapted it, didn't they, for TV? One Which, of them. The, they've adapted a couple. Tip yeah. of the Velvet got adapted. The Velvet. And The Night Watch as well. Yeah. Um, although I didn't watch it because that's my one of my favourite books, The Night Watch. So I didn't watch the adaptation because mm. I was a bit worried. Oh, it's always the, risky, isn't it? That it would ruin it, it for me. It ruined forever. Yeah. And what, finally, what advice would you give to people listening who are sitting there in their pants desperately trying to write their book? get dressed <laughs> no get dressed because it helps you write more um yeah seriously don't don't sit there in your pants 
It's so comfortable though. <laughs> yeah, not in summer when you're sticking to the sofa. That's true. Yeah, unless you've got unless you've got washable covers. Um, <laughs> what advice would I give to anyone? Uh, I'm. When writers are asked this question, I notice they always say things like, keep at it, you can do it, don't lose heart. Okay. Um, <laughs> but um, I don't think I would say that. I would say... Um, I would say be patient, uh, if anything, and don't worry if you feel you're not ready. And, you know, I... When I started writing the book, I went and looked online for loads of writers' tips, hmm. and uh, God, that would have been about four days gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, I have to say, what a load of shit, <laughs> because none of it felt applicable to me. These were people sitting in farmhouses writing book number ten. You know, oh, I go out for a walk in the morning, and then I spend half an hour writing, and then I break for lunch, and I was kind of thinking. Uh, none of this sounds like what I'm going to be able to do. So I would say ignore all tips that a writer gives you, first of all, and <laughs> do things that uh, that make you happy and that um, felicitate your ability to write. There's an old myth that you should write anything once a day as long as you write something, and I do not agree with that at all. Because if you find yourself just writing for the sake of it because you feel you should, there's no way on earth you're going to enjoy it. And I refuse to believe that any, you know, long lost gems are going to come to the forefront of your mind when you're doing a task, mm. sitting at your computer, staring at the blank page, feeling, oh, but you know, I read so-and-so's author's tips and they said to write a thousand words today. No, go outside and have a fag if you smoke, but don't start smoking if you don't because it's bad for you. I don't smoke. <laughs> You know, make a coffee, watch an episode of The Good Place, uh, read someone else's book, but don't worry if they've written from a different perspective that you would write from, because it's fine. And um, only write when you're ready. Um, and I'm sure it'll be fine. But most of all, don't listen to anything I've just said. <laughs> Apart from, don't listen to author's tips. I'm so confused. Yeah, I know. So I like to keep you, keep you on your toes. Is that good advice or bad advice? It's just advice. I think that's. I think it's excellent advice because I think what you're saying is that there's so much out there about the way that if you want to write a book, this is what you have to do. And I especially yeah. think about what you're saying about waiting until you're ready. I think once you've got that fire burning in <clears> you, you think, I have to write, I have to write, I have to be yeah. successful, I have to, you know, and every time you read a book review, you think, oh God, why aren't I writing? And, you yeah. know, and I think there's something definitely to be said for going, mm. I don't think I've got my story yet. Exactly. I mean, I really have, you know, waited. Like I said, I'm in my, you know, I got the book deal when I was 40 and I really have waited. I've had a couple of attempts at writing novels before and I think I was just writing them because I thought I should be doing it. Yeah. And there's also a lot to be said for being put under pressure. So when Little Brown came to me and said, you know, we're quite interested in hearing a novel from you, it put a rocket up me and thought, I'm really going to have to do this. And I respond quite well to deadlines. So after the initial two months of worrying, you know, I realised I was going to have to do it. Otherwise, it was going to pass me by. Mm. So, you know, and there's a lot of um, a lot of the author tips I see online are very self-helpy, fridge magnety, mm. just be you, blah, blah, blah. But I... 
I don't think that's really an honest way to talk about writing because you are going to have to change a bit of yourself if you if you want to sell a book to somebody. You are going to because I think if you tell someone, "Oh, just be you and don't let anyone change your course." Okay, fine, but if you want someone to get an agent and to get a deal and not to have extreme disappointment that someone doesn't love their idea because they might love the idea, but they might just want to make it different you know make sure you are open to being um malleable is that a word Mm -hmm. you know stick to your vision uh know what you want to write but be open to um discussion about making it a good book yeah i would not take any of this advice (laughs) i think it all sounds great do what you want (laughs) (laughs) i think it's important that you like you know that I, from publishing the, my first book, like you know, I've learned so much from working with the editors that I work with, the stuff and from my agent, the stuff that I wouldn't have necessarily even it wouldn't have occurred absolutely. To me. I mean, I probably could have found it on the internet somewhere, but you know, I was trying to actually write the book rather than just read about it. Yeah, but like so, and it, but it, you know, there is a fine line, isn't there, between yeah. like just accepting everyone's ideas as what you should do and being like, actually, this is kind of what I was trying to do. But it's yeah. about that fine line. I read this really well-meaning blog post by by an editor, which said, oh, you know, uh, if your novel has some of these, then you might have a problem. <laughs> I absolutely had oh, a wow. breakdown after reading it because I was halfway through my book and I thought, oh, I, I, so I just had to put it all out of my head and, and just I just wrote the book that, that is coming out. Yeah. So we'll see, won't we? Yeah, <laughs> I've bookmarked that blog. We can't wait. Um, we will be looking forward to hearing you read that book at the Riff Raff in June. Yes, I can't wait. We yeah. can't wait too. Thank you so oh, much. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. The Riff Raff podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com.